0: Hello, good evening, good day everybody. Welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show episode uh, 119. Welcome and I hope you're all doing very well. So today we discuss, as you know, um, geopolitics, history, current affairs and so on. I have, as usual, taken a lot of questions and I'm going to be answering them. And at the end, if there is time, I will take some questions from the live chat once the main bunch of questions is dealt with. Before we get into it, let us see who all is there with us on the live chat. I can see Shambhavi, Rahat, Singh, Komal, Samarth, Sujal, Bluebird, Tanmay, Rahul, vaibhav Dragon Emperor, Deepak, Vishnu, Spy Wolf, Sai, Tanishk, Vardhan, Kashish, Shubham, Srajna, Ublesh, Kiran, Suhani, Harshada, Aryav, Studies112, Krish Divyang, Sorab, Humor Company, Poonam Singh, Rahul Rebel Gaming, Kapi Ananya, Yug Shahin, Asmenor, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Bhuvanesh Tejas, Crazy Brain, Prithvi Raj Singh, Harsh Zaveri, Crazy Fox, Shubham Shukla, Subhi, Subhi Singh, Aditi, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day, all of you. Great to be back with you all. And with that, let us get into the questions. What are the questions for today? Let us take a look. Okay, question number one is uh, the most popular question right now. Everyone wants to talk about this. Uh, Skandan says, what's your take on Crowley, ex-CIA, accepting that CIA killed uh, former Indian Prime Minister Bahadur Shastri and uh, Dr. Homi Jibaba? Jesus says, Namaste, what are your views on a CIA agent Robert Crowley confessing that the US government got uh, Mr Shastri and Dr Baba killed lage raho online says your take on the CIA killing India's nuclear physicist Homi Baba and Prime Minister Lal Badu Shastri confessions of Robert Crowley uh, second in command of the CIA's directorate of special op- of operations covert operations as recorded in a book by Gregory Douglas okay so this, this this is just three questions lots of people have asked me about this so uh yeah okay so let's let's examine this issue so uh this cia agent has apparently confessed that the us got somebody got our prime minister and uh, dr baba killed and so on so what is the what is the story behind this where does this claim come from where does this claim come from So this is not exactly a very new claim. Let me share my screen. So this is where this story comes from. It's a book by Gregory Douglas called Confessions with the Crow. Yeah, so this is the book. And uh, who is Gregory Douglas? Not quite sure. And it's about this uh, CIA... uh, agent, Robert Trumbull Crowley, uh, once a leader of the CIA's clandestine operations division. So this uh, person was contacted by the author in 1993, and uh, several interviews were done. And this book is a result of those interviews. This book was published in 2013. So it's been around for almost a decade And if you go into this book and you read some of these uh, interviews, then you will find that this individual, whoever he is, Robert Trumbull Crowley, apparently makes the claim. The claim or the boast that the CIA got uh, Prime Minister Lal Badu Shastri killed and also Dr. Homi Baba killed. So that is a claim, a boast that is made during an interview with this individual called Gregory Douglas, all right? This is by no means any kind of proof. It is a retired CIA guy making a certain claim, making a boast. Can we we consider this to be proof? No. What is the actual evidence beyond the claim made by some person? There is no other evidence beyond someone's claim. So, uh, my point of view is that it is certainly possible. Somebody else has, had asked that, is it so easy for the Americans to get an Indian prime minister killed or an Indian nuclear scientist killed? Uh, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, etc., it was much easier than it is today. For mm-hmm. it, it was much easier for the Americans to get somebody killed, uh, even a head of state. Even today, it may, be, it may be possible for them to do that, even today. So, yeah, it is certainly possible that they could have done such things, uh, it is known that uh, whether it's a CIA, whether it's the Israeli Mossad or whatever, uh, they do uh, undertake such operations. Uh, one hears about various uh, nuclear scientists in for example Iran getting assassinated, getting killed and the blame is usually laid on the doorstep of the doorstep of the Mossad the Israeli uh, Secret Service intelligence Agency, right uh, So these things have happened in the past, yes. Uh, So, it's certainly possible that the CIA may have been behind this, the Americans may have been behind uh, what happened. Now, what happened to Dr. Uh, Homi Baba? He died in a mysterious plane crash in Europe. It was over the Swiss or the French Alps, I believe. The plane crashed there and and, uh, for decades, there was no attempt made to go and look at the wreckage and uh, see if there were any any survivors or anything like that. Obviously, survivors won't last beyond a few hours if anybody survives on a a high mountain range. So for decades, there was no attempt made to uh, figure out what happened and to examine the wreckage. So that is very mysterious. For sure, it's mysterious. So Dr. Baba died in that plane crash, very mysterious plane crash. And uh, Prime Minister Shastri died in Tashkent in the USSR, the then USSR right so it is i would say it is uh, a little far fetched to believe that the americans who were already engaged in this massive cold war with the soviet union would have been able to assassinate an indian prime minister on Russian or on USSR soil, it's a little far-fetched to imagine that, unless the USSR itself was complicit in this sort of uh, in this sort of operation, which again is even more far-fetched to imagine to believe, right? So I would say that it's not entirely impossible, especially in the case of Doctor Homi Baba. It is very suspicious the way the plane crash happened and the way he died, and and the way there was no investigation conducted either from India or from. Uh, or, or, or from France or Switzerland or from, from any other country, right? That is extremely suspicious. So, yes, there is something strange that happened uh, uh, in the case of the death of Dr. Baba. In the case of, the, of, of Prime Minister Shastri, once again, it's uh, lots of unanswered questions are there. Questions that have still not been answered. Uh, why was no post-mortem conducted, or or was it? No, why was it not conducted properly? Even today, the cap that the Prime Minister was wearing, which was stained with blood and other fluids, is still available. Even today, it could be examined, and and uh, one could try to figure out what exactly uh, the blood or the bodily body fluids contain, the, the traces of which are still on the cap in the possession of the Shastri family. So there's a lot that has not been answered, even in the case of the death the premature death of the Indian Prime Minister Mr. Shastri. So certainly questions exist, certainly unanswered questions are there, uh, but I would say that this uh, news that has suddenly reappeared, even though the book was published in 2013, that news uh, is a little bit, uh, it's just a claim. It's not even a claim, it's a boast. Made by a retired CIA person, a boast that has made, that was made without providing a single piece of evidence. So that's all we can say. I mean, if you start uh, taking boasts seriously, you're you're going into the territory of conspiracy theories. A conspiracy theory is a claim that is made without presenting any evidence whatsoever. Right. So as far as we are concerned, as of today, we have zero evidence to substantiate the claim that this uh, ex-CIA agent Robert Crowley made. There is no evidence to back up, to substantiate the claim. And that's why uh, it is hard to take it seriously. It is certainly possible, but there is no evidence for it. So that is as far as I would go with this. If evidence emerges... Well, then one would have to take it seriously. And it is certainly possible. But as far as we know, there is no evidence. So that's where we are. Okay, next question. Ananya says, um, thank you. What is your take on the latest uh, status on the Russia-Ukraine war? What do, you, uh, do you think Russia will achieve its goals? Uh, the Russia-Ukraine war is continuing. It is continuing... Uh, slowly steadily uh we don't quite know what exactly is happening the, the the mainstream media which is entirely controlled by the west which means it's it's entirely controlled by the u.s is port- is trying to portray uh russia uh, the the situation as bad for russia russia is not doing well and so on but if you look at the ground realities the russian uh advance is certainly visible on the map russia controls over a quarter of the uh territory of the former Ukraine right so the uh, map has been essentially permanently altered and uh, I believe that the Russians whatever goals they have they uh, will achieve them that's what it looks like unless the US or or NATO actually gets involved on, on Ukrainian territory which would be a severe escalation that could lead to any kind of consequences right so i don't uh, see that sort of thing happening i don't see the americans getting involved directly i don't see nato getting involved directly so the russians will slowly steadily march forward and whatever objectives they have in mind they will achieve them i would imagine that okay let's take a look at the map obviously because uh, it always helps to take a look at the map Uh, not this sorry let me remove this and uh, let me share the map where is the map here is the map So, there's the map. So, we're talking about Ukraine, this part of the world here. So, the Russians are already in control of Crimea. They're in control of the Donbass region, which is eastern Ukraine. They are in control of the uh, part of Ukraine that abuts the Azov Sea. Essentially, uh, Mariupol and... uh, all that, and eventually, I suppose they would want Mikolaev and Odessa as well. They would essentially, I think, want to control the entire Black Sea coast of Ukraine, and maybe even take Kiev or force uh, some kind of regime change in Kiev, and leave the eastern part of Ukraine as a as a leftover rump state that will be, in some ways or essentially a satellite state of russia so i believe that's what the overall long term objective of this military operation would be that would be the political objective to uh, to ensure that ukraine is no longer a threat uh, directly or indirectly for russia's national interest so that is what the objective i think would be now um, the west has the us has imposed massive amounts of sanctions on Russia, it's not worked. It's not worked. It's it's actually backfired, right? Uh, One would have expected that the Russian economy would have been destroyed by the sanctions. The opposite has happened. The Russian economy is doing well. The Russian uh, ruble is the best performing, is most likely the best performing currency in the whole world right now. (laughs) <laughs> you know uh so that's that's the sort of thing that has happened and they have been able to achieve this by pegging their currency to the price of gold so the russian ruble is essentially a proxy for gold for actual gold which the us dollar not is not right the us dollar is tied to the price of petroleum it's a it's a petrodollar so um and the thing is the russian economy is on very strong footing you know uh if we look at the gdp of Russia, the, the overall yearly national GDP, it's not even in the top 10. And yet the, the truth is that many of these GDP figures are inflated and they are fake figures. Uh, many of the, uh, of the industries and all, all the calculations that go into the GDP are based on goods and consumer goods and services that don't really have any value. The real value that is the true value of a nation's GDP is how much cement you produce, how much steel and iron you produce. Whatever was the metrics in the 1920s and 1930s, that is the true uh, basis of, of a nation's real GDP. How much agricultural produce do they have per year? And if you look at Russia, the fundamentals are very strong. It's essentially an, an autarkic state which means they produce everything. They are self-sufficient in natural resources, in minerals, in agriculture, all these things. So it's almost impossible to destroy them economically by imposing sanctions upon them because they don't need anything, actually, from the outside world. In reality, they are the major suppliers of energy to Europe, whether it is natural gas or or whatever else, petroleum, etc. And the entirety, the whole of Europe is essentially dependent on Russian Energy supplies, and right now we are seeing an energy cli- crisis in in Europe, created entirely by European actions. Yeah, uh, they depend on on Russia for for gas, natural gas to to for heating for energy. Uh, the Germans have pledged to shut down all their nuclear power plants, and didn't, and they don't want to depend on on, on coal. So where are they going to get their energy from? This this is a crisis situation. The Americans are witnessing this massive inflation, right? significant inflation in the us right now uh, they are increasing their interest rates which is why the dollar is becoming stronger it's becoming stronger and stronger since uh, the beginning of the year since since january 1st 2022 because they are increasing the interest interest rates which is why it is uh, p- people want to invest in the dollar and that's why there is a demand for the dollar and they i believe they've stopped printing unnecessary amounts of of us dollars paper money which is why the us dollar is is appreciating in value. And yet, the US economy is not doing well. You're seeing inflation and all that. So Russia is doing well. And the Chinese are sitting on the sidelines and watching carefully. They're taking notes. They're seeing what works, what doesn't work, what the US response is like, and so on. And they will uh, use the lessons they're learning in the future when the time is right in their own agenda. Yeah, they also have their own agenda. And so on. So that is where we are. That is the current situation, roughly, overall, briefly. And it's the stalemate continues. It's not really a stalemate. The the Russians have the Ukrainians essentially at their mercy. They are in no hurry. There is no time pressure on them. They are fighting a a truly old-fashioned war, step by step, trench by trench, kilometer by kilometer, they're going forward. They are consolidating whatever gains they have made and uh, they're going on. a couple of months ago, people were saying that the era of tank warfare is over. The tank is obsolete. Well, that's not quite the case now, isn't it? What happened to those stories? And so on. So all the uh, disinformation, the propaganda on social media, on the Western channels, Indian channels as well, it's its its falling flat. The Russians are doing well. And uh, the, so that's where we are. That's That's the situation as of today. Okay, a couple of questions here. Lady of the Multiverse says, What's your take on Draupadi Murmu as the president of Bharat? Ananya says, What are your thoughts on Madam President Dropadi Murmu on being the first lady president of India? What is the role of a president in India? Do you think this will be inspirational to Indian women? And what national contribution will Madam Murmu be able to make to India? All right. So uh, just a tiny correction, which is okay, not, not important. Uh uh, Madam uh, dropadi Murmu is not the first lady president, she is the second lady president there was another lady who was president about a decade or so ago what was her name, I, I can't quite remember her name, I can see her face in my mind's eye, but I can't remember her face not important, she did not, well she was not a very consequential president uh, she came after Dr. A.P. Abdul Kalam, right? that lady so so uh, uh, mrs murmu is going to be the second lady president of india but the reason why uh, her presidency is, is is important is because uh, she belongs to a so called tribal community right uh, so she she belongs to the santhal community of uh, eastern india jharkhand i believe right and it's a significant community and it's classified as tribals backward apparently backward people or whatever Uh, These are classifications and categorizations that are left over from the British era and we still continue to use that. So uh, the Santhal people are classified as tribal people. Now these are not some random uh, obscure people. Uh, In case you don't know, in the 19th century there was a very significant Santhal rebellion against british against the british occupation of india this happened in jharkhand in in west bengal i think it was in 1855 right a couple of years before the big war of independence 1857 so the santals they they uh, uh they rebelled against the british occupation of their territory and overall of india in and also against the zamindari system which was which which predated the British occupation of India. So, as we know, India suffered a millennium of humiliation, a millennium of foreign occupation, roughly, roughly a millennium. Yeah, give or take, give or take. So, the first part was the Turkic occupation of India. Uh, they, in one One of the components of that was the Bengal Sultanate, or whatever you want to call it, right? It starts with the destruction of Nalanda by the by the by Bakhtiyar Khilji, and then it, it things go bad. Things go worse from there. So the Turks or the Mughals or whatever you wanna call them, these invaders, occupiers, they imposed what's called the zamindari system, in which certain warlords or feudal, uh, essentially thugs, were given large pieces of territory, from which they would collect tax, and that tax would be given to the. Uh, to the Mughal emperor or whatever else, uh, who, whoever the overlord was, it was it would be given to their person, to to the to their administration, to their government, for what for whatever purpose they saw fit, and this was a deeply exploitative system. It it impoverished and uh, uh, and uh, victimized the citizens of India, right? The zamindari system, and the zamindari system continued in, uh, during the British era, uh, during the British occupation of India. Uh, and eventually, the certain uh, Zamindari classes came into existence, and that's what it was. So, this was deeply oppressive, and typically, the people who lived in forests and people, uh, uh, essentially, like people like the Santals, for instance, were greatly victimized. So, the Santals rose up in rebellion against the Zamindari system and the British occupation of India in 1855. Uh, the leaders of this revolt, the leaders of this war for freedom, were four brothers who belonged whose surname was Murmu, the same as Mrs. Dropadi Murmu, right? So their names were Sidhu, Kanhu, and uh, there were there were four of them. So they led the the rebellion against the British. It lasted a few months. It was eventually crushed brutally. Tens of thousands of the Santal, Santal people were massacred. Lots of villages were burned. It was very brutal, very cruel, and there was a lot of bloodshed. And the rebellion was eventually crushed. So the Santals were—they—they they were the first, not—not not actually the first, but they preceded their rebellion, preceded the 1857 War of Independence by two years. Right. So it's not some obscure tribe. They are—they have a significant role that they have played in history. So uh, there are lots of these so-called tribal communities in India, which are actually uh, financially and economically quite backward. Now, if you ask any of your history professors, they will say that um, uh, that the tribals of India are the so-called Adivasis or Moolnivasis of India, uh, which is uh, something that... Uh, They use the Aryan invasion myth to to make this claim. They say that the Adivasis are the first people to live in India. The Aryans came later. That sort of nonsense they they spout. And they say that the economic backwardness, financial backwardness of the tribal populations of India is a consequence of the brutal, unjust, oppressive uh, rule of the Aryans in India. The question I would like to ask is who ruled India for the past 1000 years? Was it the so-called Aryans or the Hindus who were ruling India for the past 1,000 years? No. It was the foreigners who were occupying and ruling India for the past 1,000 years. Every defect that you see in Indian society is a consequence of that. If certain communities and certain sections of Indian societies are deeply oppressed and still financially very and economically very backward and they have suffered the social injustice, it is not Whose fault is it? It is the fault of the of of the of the people who ruled over India, who lorded over India over the past one thousand years, right? So uh, the fact that this lady, Mrs. Draupadi Murmu, has been appointed has been elect- elected the president of India is a great step forward in bringing uh, dignity and and. Uh, justice and equality back to all sections of Indian society, especially those that have been deeply oppressed by the foreign oppressors and rulers of India over the past 1,000 years. So I think it's a very good step. It's a great step forward. It will give a great sense of joy and pride to those sections of Indian society that have been oppressed deeply by foreign oppressors and and invaders and occupiers. And uh, it's a great step forward for India. It's a great step forward for women as well, Right. So overall, I think it's it's a wonderful thing. Uh, if you look at various academics, whether in India, whether abroad, they always try to portray India as a deeply in egalitarian society. They blame it all on Indian culture, not on the foreign occupation of 1000 years, of the past 1000 years. They try to blame the victim every time. They say it is a defect of Indian culture. Indian culture is backward, primitive, misogynistic, blah, 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 all that all that stuff. So these steps that are being made, that are being made now, they are a means of combating these lies, these colonial lies that are still being pray- spread as gospel truth by academics, by journalists, by various think tanks, and so on and so forth. So I think it's a very good move, and I, I congratulate... Uh, Mrs Mormu, and I congratulate the prime minister and the government on taking this excellent step and I thank them as well for that okay sunil singh says soon after the funeral of shinzo abe prime minister fumio kishida promised the people of japan that uh, of uh, that the constitution of japan would be amended as per shinzo abe shinzo abe's vision Will they be able to convince America to leave Japan? So, uh, so what's happened right now? We know that on the the shocking assassination happened of of former prime minister Mr. Shinzo Abe, who was the most most consequential prime minister Japan has ever had, especially since the. Uh, U.S. occupation of Japan began in 1945, and the the U.S. occupation of Japan still continues. Okay, so Japan is a nation that is under foreign occupation, against U.S. Uh, under U.S. occupation, and Japan has had a history of this revolving door prime ministership. Prime ministers come and go, come and go, and they typically are able to do nothing. And a few prime ministers made a little bit of a mark, like uh, Mr. Nakasone and so on. But Mr. Abe is the longest-serving prime minister in Japan of all time and the most consequential prime minister Japan has ever had, at least in the past 70 years. And maybe he was the tallest leader that Japan had as of today. And he was assassinated very recently, right? And after his assassination, this election, was, election happened, and his liberal democratic party was able to acquire, was able to win a two-thirds majority, a super majority in the Japanese uh, parliament, right? And currently the leader is Mr. Funyo Kishida, the prime minister, who was essentially a protégé of Mr. Abe. So in this party, Mr. Abe was kind of a kingmaker, even though he was made... Even though he stepped down from the prime ministership, he, citing health reasons, he was still very much active. He was still not that old. I think he still had a decade of active political life, at least, left in him. And he was kind of a kingmaker. So Mr. Fumio Kishida may have been the prime minister, but he he was kind of answerable to Mr. Shinzo Abe. That's the kind of situation it was. Now that... uh, that pillar of strength is gone. So Mr. Kishida is on his own. The question is, does he have the political strength, the the political uh, stature to carry out a massive change, like amending the Constitution of Japan? The Constitution of Japan was created, was written by Americans in 1945. It was imposed upon the people of Japan, upon the nation of Japan. And since 1945, not a single word has been changed in the Constitution of Japan america essentially controls japan america is occupying japan militarily there are i don't know how many military bases there in japan all across the nation and uh, various japanese politicians have alleged that any significant decision that is made in japanese uh, in the Jap- in the japanese government in policy or whatever it is done with the approval of american generals and the american government so it's essentially the us that's running the country now mr abe was a nationalist. he wanted uh, to amend the Constitution and to allow Japan to to have a proper army and to become uh, and and to have an independent fo- independent foreign policy. that's what Mr. Shinzo Abe sought. Now he was a man of of considerable stature, the tallest leader in Japan. he could have possibly conceivably been able to possibly try and do this right it's not easy it's not easy to do that even if you have, if you have a technical supermajority because overall the after all is the americans that run the country they own the country essentially it's not that easy it's it's uh, technically feasible but will will they have the guts to do it that's the question mr kishida i'm not sure if he has the political standing or the stature to do it. And it's quite possible that in the absence of Mr. Shinzo Abe, even the Japanese people will not be convinced. Uh, they have been indoctrinated, the Japanese people have been indoctrinated into this, this culture of pacifism. Uh, they feel a deep sh- sense of shame about what uh, Jap- Japan did, rightly or wrongly, during World War II. Uh, They are taught that Japan must be a pacifistic country. Japan must never fight again. Japan must not have an army. Army bad, military bad, pacifism good, ahinsa good. That sort of thing has been drilled into the minds of the Japanese people. So right now, the people of Japan are concerned with prices and wages and daily life and medical services and childcare and all those things. And with such fundamental concerns, constitutional revision is kind of a luxury, a luxury item. That's how most Japanese, I believe, would see Scenario. So, in the face of this sort of political climate, will it be possible for Mr. Kishida to amend the constitution of Japan and allow Japan to have its own, well, not a self-defense form force, but a proper army, a proper military? I think it would. It is. Uh, it's unlikely that Mr. Kishida may be able to do that. I hope that he's able to do that. It would be good for Japan. It will be good for the people of Japan, for the nation of Japan. I think they have suffered enough in the past 70 years. They have paid more than the price. And uh, I mean, every nation does certain good things and bad things. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I, I'm not saying that we must condone the certain actions that the Japanese military did during, the, the, during their World War II campaign. Some of the things they did were, were reprehensible and one must condemn them. But there are other nations that have done far worse. And no one has ever punished them for that. So I think it would be good for Japan if this constitution is amended that if they' are allowed to have their own military and their own independent foreign policy. but I think it's a stretch to to expect that to happen. I think it will be a very tall order for Mr. F., Mr. Kishida to go ahead and, and make this happen. I hope it happens, but I am I am not quite sure it will be possible. So let's see. Let's hope for the best. But And if it happens, it's good for India as well. If Japan is, uh, is able to break free of the shackles of foreign occupation and have its own military, its own uh, independent foreign policy, it is great for India. India and Japan are natural allies. India and Japan are civilizational brothers. Japan is a child of Indian civilization. So it would be great for India. But will the Americans allow that? I think not. Right next, intellectual thinker says, Why uh, did Andhra, Ishvaku's, Chutu's and abira's rulers have names such as putra Haritiputra, Mathariputra, all those Brahmin gotras?" That's an interesting question. So what Mr. Intellectual Thinker is talking about is the various Satvahana rulers in the Deccan region uh the Satvahanas ruled in this region in the deccan region in, in southern in southern and w- western parts of india central parts of india as well in the first and second etc centuries ad Right, So they were contemporaneous with the Mahakshatrapas in the western part of India, in Gujarat, in parts of Maharashtra, etc. The Mahakshatrapas were the Indo-Scythian rulers, the great Indo-Scythian rulers who controlled Gujarat, who controlled the, the great ports of India with uh, through which we did trade with Rome and Egypt and other uh, various empires and civilizations. So contemporaneous with the Mahakshatrapas, with the Indo-Scythians, were the Satwana rulers. And uh, some of them have names like Gautamiputra Satakarni, Putra Pulavami, and Putra Satakarni, and so on and so forth. So Gautamiputra Satakarni, uh, he lived in the 1st or 2nd century AD. Uh, it is believed that he was either a contemporary or a contemporary of the great uh, Indo-Skethian Mahakshatra Nahapana, Or maybe he came just a few decades after Nahapana, right? Because uh, several of the coins of Nahapana, which are very abundant, several of Nahapana's coins have been found to be struck with Gautama Putra Shatakarni's uh, uh, symbols. And Nahapana's coins are found everywhere, not just in India, but also in in Britain, in Rome, in the Roman regions, etc. Uh, So that demonstrates how far reaching India's trade was. So, this uh, the one of the greatest of the Satvahana rulers was Gautami Putra Satakarne. So yes, he was called Gautami Putra. Why was he called Gautami Putra? Not because of some Brahmin gotra, but because his mother's name was Gautami Balashri. So typically, what would happen is that these uh, kings, emperors, would have multiple wives. Right? Polygamy is is something that is acceptable in in the Dharmic uh, culture. So many of these kings would have two or three wives. And each of these wives would bear children. And one of these children would eventually go on to succeed the father as the king or the emperor. So then this the new ruler would then identify himself by the name of his mother to differentiate him with other from other children because there would be multiple children with from multiple wives. So Gautami Putra's mother was uh, Satakarni's mother was Gautami Balashri. So that's why he called himself Gautami Putra Satakarni. Now he had two or three sons. One was Pulamavi, the other one was also known, known called Satakarni. So they were both called Vashisthi Putra Pulavami and Pashisthi Putra Satakarni. So The name of the mother mother was appended to the given name of these sons or these kings. That's how it was. So it is not named after some Brahmin, Gotra or whatever Gotra. They took the names of their mothers. They appended their mother's names, something Putra and then the actual name. So Putra Satakarni, Putra Pulavami and so on and so forth. That's how it was. That was the naming system. So uh, yeah, so they essentially took their mother's names. As their identifier. That's how it was. So that's the answer to your question. Okay, Saurabh says, "What were the Bogas kale clay tablets? Did they mention Vedic gods? Who was the Mitanni king Tushiratta? Or did all, does all this indicate westward migration of culture from India and people from India? Uh, what about some arguments at first that the first speakers of Sanskrit were were Syrians?" How can these claims be shattered and so on? Okay. What are the Bogaz Kale clay tablets? So they, these, um, let me see if I can um, put something up on the screen. Bogaz clay tablets. I'm not sure I have that, but let me show you something else on the screen. So we are talking about the Mitani's, right? So first of all, let me tell you what, what these clay tablets were. Uh, so this was essentially a treaty between the Mitanni kingdom and the Hittite kingdom. So to understand where this is, you have to take a look at the map, because otherwise you will not get the correct context. Where is the map? I had a map somewhere. Yeah, it's here. One second. So we are talking, so let us orient ourselves first. You can see where India is. That's where, That's the part of the geography I'm sure you know. So we zoom in a little bit and we move westwards. To the west, we have this temporary nation of Pakistan. Then we have our Persian brothers and sisters there. Our Persian brethren and sisteren. And west of Persia, we have Iraq and Turkey, the present-day nation of Turkey, which is Anatolia. And and to the south of Turkey, we have Syria. So it is in this region that these kingdoms and empires existed. Now let me show you a different... uh, a different map, to put that into better perspective. Let's take a look at this. So uh, let's zoom in a little. Let us wait for that thing to load. Here we are. So, now that you know which part of the world we are talking about, this is the two uh, kingdoms, the Mitanni and the Hittites. So. the capital of the Mitanni kingdom was Vashukhani. We are not quite sure where it where it was exactly located. We may have found it. We may not have found it. But yeah, its capital was Vashukhani, which means mine of great wealth in Sanskrit, Vashukhani. And the capital of the Hittite kingdom was Hattusa, further to the northwest of the Mitanni kingdom or empire. To the south, you had the Egyptian empire, the Egyptian pharaohs. And to the southeast, you had Babylonia. All right, so this is the geography that we are talking about now. What are we talking about? We are talking about which time period 1500 or so BC, three and a half thousand years before today. Okay, so about 1500 BC or 1450 BC, somewhere like that, there was a treaty between these two kingdoms, between the Mitannis and the Hittites. Uh, so the Mitannis were this kingdom in this region, their aristocracy, their ruling class was Indo-Aryan. They are classified as Indo-Aryan because they spoke Sanskrit. They spoke late Vedic Sanskrit. And these Hittites, they also spoke the Hittite language which seems to have had elements of Sanskrit or maybe their aristocracy also spoke Sanskrit. So yes, so this is present day Syria, present day Turkey. That is indeed where the first evidence of Sanskrit is found. So they found clay tablets in this region, which uh, record an ancient treaty, diplomatic treaty, between the Mitanni kingdom and the Hittite kingdom, uh, between the king of the Hittites and the king of the Mitanni's. And uh, it was a peace treaty of of sorts. And in this treaty, in the text of the treaty, which is in the cuneiform uh, script, the Vedic gods... Indra, Varuna, and the Ashwin twins are invoked to witness the treaty and to bless the treaty. All right. So these are Vedic gods. Indra, who later became Zeus, who later became Jupiter, who later became Thor. Indra, Varuna, and the Ashwin uh, Ashwin twins. These gods were invoked to witness the treaty as witnesses to the treaty and to bless the treaty, so that this treaty succeeds. And. uh, so what's the deal about the 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 Mitanni? Their aristocracy, the ruling class, spoke Sanskrit, and they had uh, like uh, you know um, kings uh, with names like Tusharata, which essentially means Tvesharatha. Tvesharatha means he who has a very fast chariot. Tvesharatha. ratha means chariot, right? In Sanskrit. So that's the kind of name uh, this king had, and. Uh, uh, the Mitanni had uh, extensive diplomatic and family connections with the pharaohs of Egypt. Uh, I think the daughter of this king, Tusharatha, was married to one of the pharaohs of Egypt. I think it was Amenhotep I or something like that, right? Uh, let's take a look at the correspondence that they had. If I can find it. Um, am I able to find... Okay, yeah, here we go. Here we go. Let me Let me put that on the screen. So this king so he's he uh, wrote letters to the egyptian pharaoh amenhotep the uh, Third, around 1370 bc so they th- this correspondence is still available and i think his daughter married the egyptian pharaoh amenhotep the Third, and so on and if you uh, And there's another piece of evidence from this region, from about 1400-1500 BC, the Kikuli horse master's uh, horse training manual. So this is a Hittite manual in which a Hittite horse master named Kikuli writes an extensive manual on how to train horses for warfare. Now, the thing is that this tablet is written in the Hittite language. However, there are certain technical terms, technical words that Kikuli is not familiar with in the Hittite language, and therefore for certain technical terms, he uses Sanskrit words because apparently he was better with Sanskrit than with the Hittite language. So uh, so there is the, so the first written hard evidence of Sanskrit is actually found in this region, Anatolia and Syria, which is why, Certain people make the claim that Sanskrit was first spoken in Syria. Yeah, so how do we counter this claim? It's not actually very hard. Examine what we have to do is we have to examine the Sanskrit that is recorded in these clay, clay tablets, in, in in these inscriptions. What is the kind of Sanskrit that was that was written? So on upon examination. And looking at the vocabulary, the words that are used, and so on, it can be seen that the Sanskrit that the Mitanni and the Hittites used was late Vedic Sanskrit. It was not proper Vedic Sanskrit, late Vedic Sanskrit. It was later, it was, it was newer than the language that was written that was used for the Rig Veda, for instance. The Rig Vedic Sanskrit is the most ancient form of Sanskrit that we know. Sanskrit has evolved over the millennia. There is Vedic Sanskrit, there is late Vedic Sanskrit, there is then classical Sanskrit, which is the, the Sanskrit of the Paninian era, and so on. And after then, you had the various Prakrits, the upper branch languages, and so on. So the language, the Sanskrit that the Mitanni and the Hittites used was late Vedic Sanskrit. It is It is Sanskrit from a later period than the Vedic age, which tells you that these people would have migrated from India where the original Sanskrit was spoken. Because there are certain words that uh, were used in Vedic Sanskrit, which were not used in late Vedic Sanskrit. New words arrived in late, late Vedic Sanskrit and so on. Uh, and this analysis has been done extensively by uh, the scholar, Mr. Shrikant Talagiri. His website is available. You can, it's it's uh, all the all the information is available out there. Extensive analysis, detailed analysis, you can you can look it up. I'm not gonna put it on my screen right now because it'll take me time to uh to pull it out. But yeah, if you're interested, uh, take a look at Mr. Shrikant Talagiri's website and all the information is out there. So the first speakers of Sanskrit were not Syrians, the Hittites and the Mitanni, uh, they used late Vedic Sanskrit, which means that they they would have so if if they were already in as Present in this region as the aristocracy, as the ruling class, about fifteen hundred BC. It means they they would have arrived there a few centuries before, maybe two thousand BC. Yeah, and maybe, uh, so so that's the kind of approximate dating one can arrive at. So it indicates some sort of westward migration at some stage in history from India maybe during the mature so-called Harappan era of Indian civilization, or maybe the late Harappan era of the Indian civilization or something like that. There were lots of waves of migrations out of India, eastwards, westwards, around 5,000 or so years before today. So this was clearly one of those, right? So that's what we can deduce from the information that we have at hand. Hardik says, "Who were the Native Americans? Who are the Native Americans? Uh, who lives there? Who, I mean, who lived there before the European settlement there, and what happened to them? All right, who were the Native? Who are the Native Americans? Once again, let's take a look at the map to understand uh, what part of the world we are referring to. Map. Where's the map? Here it is." so we are talking about the americas and we talk of, when we talk about the americas we mean the north american continent and the south american continent which is connected by this central american region so the original natives of this of this entire massive part of the world are called the native americans and uh, so we know that in south america as well as in Central America, there were these very highly developed civilizations: the Aztecs, the Mayas, the Incas, the the Toltecs, the Chimu, the Moche, and so on and so forth. The Olmecs, lots of highly developed civilizations with their own writing systems, with their own culture, with a very sophisticated calendar system. Uh, you find, if you if you Look in this region, in the Amazon rainforest, you find extensive uh, settlements in this region, entire cities, large cities, well-planned cities with with monumental architecture. You find pyramids and so on and so forth. So these are the natives of South America. Similarly, in Central America also you find similar things. In Mexico, uh, Mexico City was earlier called Tenochtitlan, and they had their own civilization, their own culture there, which was destroyed by the Spanish conquistadors, Hernan Cortes and so on, brutes, barbarians. And then in North America, apparently there was nothing. So isn't that extraordinarily strange that in South America, in Central America, you had incredibly advanced civilizations, civilizations dating back two, three, four, five thousand years? And in North America, you found almost nothing. You find Cahokia, you find certain things, uh, and yet nothing much, which is not quite true. The truth is that they do not encourage any historical research in North America into Native American history. There are settlements there also. There is archaeological evidence, but it is not excavated. Because if you excavate that, then it becomes very clear that these, this land actually originally belonged to the natives. It was stolen by the European settlers, by European colonizers who are now in occupation of the land. right? So the Native Americans are the original inhabitants of these two continents. And uh, their genetic analysis uh, tells us that uh, they have a significant amount of genetic affinity with the people of Eastern Asia, maybe Mongolia, maybe Siberia, maybe the Ainu people of, of Northern Asia, Japan uh, maybe the people of Sakhalin and so on and so forth so the Native Americans have a significant amount of genetic affinity with the people of Eastern Asia all right and some people talk about India as well well thus far there is no evidence of that there may be but we don't have evidence because nobody has done any research and it's also possible that there could be genetic uh, affinity with with Africa as well but we don't know for sure now the Official story is that there was no human presence in, Amer- in the Americas until about 13, 14000 years before today. That has been the official line from the historians. Well, now what's happened is that they have found human settlements in Southern America, in South America, that date back to more than 100,000 years before today. So those lies are now being debunked, right? So it's now becoming more and more apparent that there has been human settlement in the Americas that dates back more than 100,000 years before today. And the truth is that the natives are the true inhabitants of the land. It, they should be the real owners of the, owners of the land. The entire two continents have been stolen from the natives by the European colonizers and settlers and occupiers of these two continents. Today, native culture has been destroyed, whether it is in Mexico, whether it is in Brazil, whether it is in Argentina, where the natives have been essentially wiped out, yeah, or other parts of South America. Native culture is almost non-existent. And in North America, it's almost been stamped out. There was a massive, incredibly brutal and cruel genocide of the Native Americans in North America. I don't know what the exact number of of death is. Maybe a hundred million, possibly. Who knows? It's never been catalogued because that would, well, not look very good, right? Because these are the people who now talk about human rights and all that. So uh, it's best to keep these things secret. So there was a massive genocide of the Native Americans. Their land was stolen gradually. Certain treaties were signed and the, the, the treaties were broken. And now... Whatever is left of the Native American people in North America, they live on reservations. They are treated like second-class or third-class citizens. They are discriminated against. There is a very high incidence of crime against them. There is a great amount of racism against them. They are marginalized. They are oppressed. They have very high rates of suicide, alcoholism, depression, drug abuse, crime, whatnot. That is the truth about the Native Americans. I hope they get some justice. I, I hope they get freedom again that would be good for humanity. So, yeah, that's what it is. Ramalakshmi says, in the previous video, in the previous video, when you showed uh, the forward block of Netaji Sebastian Bose, it says, left wing, which type of ideology do they support? Could you brief a little bit about that? Okay. The forward block is officially classified the all-India forward bloc is officially classified as a left-wing nationalist party. So in India, left-wing and nationalist doesn't quite make sense, right? Uh, so it's like this. In 1939, Mr. Bose was the president of the Indian National Congress. And then he wo- a political coup was engineered against him by Mr. Mohandas Gandhi. So Mr. Gandhi engineered a political coup within the Congress party against Mr. Bose, who was the president of the Congress party. And he was uh, Mr. Bose was outmaneuvered by Mr. Gandhi. And Mr. Bose had to resign. He had to leave the Congress party. Or he had to resign from the presidency of the, of the Congress party. So what Mr. Bose did after that is that he established his own faction within the Congress party. His own political power, faction, which eventually became distinct political party. He called it the forward block of the Congress party, of the Indian National Congress. And this forward block uh, advocated armed resistance from uh, against British occupation. It advocated a violent overthrow of the British and liberation from India, or liberation for India from British rule. That's what it advocated. The overall Congress party advocated ahimsa, non-violence, peace, love, compassion, and that sort of thing, right? Mr. Bose said, we need to oppose the British violently and overthrow them by force. So that was a complete break with the ideology of Mr. Gandhi. So in 1939, this uh, All India Forward bloc was uh, created by Mr. Bose. Mr. Bose became the leader of that. In 1940, Mr. Bose was arrested and... Uh, Eventually, in I think in forty one, Mr. Bose escaped from house arrest. He escaped to northern India to Gandhar, Afghanistan, and through there he went into Russia and eventually ended up in Germany. Eventually, from there he ended up in Japan. He started the INA, and we know the story, right? So, Mr. Bose was associated with the forward block for, the forward block for a very short amount of time, and in those days, uh. The left ideology was was uh, quite prevalent, and uh, socialism was something that Mr. Bose saw as a means of emancipating the Indian citizens from the poverty that had been uh, that had been imposed upon them by the British. So, socialism was seen as the vehicle that would take India forward for a brief period of time, and eventually, uh, things would change. And typically, outside of India. The left is always nationalistic, whether it is in the USSR. The left, which is the uh, Soviet Communist Party, was greatly nationalistic. There were patriots. Even the Chinese Communist Party is deeply nationalistic. Anywhere in the world, communist parties have been nationalists, have been patriots. It's only in India that communists are mercenaries for anti-India forces. So the forward bloc was a nationalistic party. Yes, there were elements of left-wing ideology, of leftist or, or socialistic ideology, or, or communist ideology, which is okay. It was not Marxism, it was, it was socialism that they believed in, Mr. Bose most likely believed in. And that's what he wanted to use as a vehicle for emancipating India and liberating India and taking India forward uh, economically. Because uh, if you look at the way the USSR developed as a superpower, it it is through socialism. Uh, whether you want to consider it right or wrong or whatever, they did become a superpower in a very short amount of time, which is a, a, an incredible achievement. So that was something that could have been emulated. And Mr. Nehru also espoused socialism, but he espoused the Fabian form of socialism, which means no growth. <laughs> so that's how it was. So that, in brief, is the uh, all-India forward block. It still exists. Uh I'm not sure what role it plays today. It doesn't seem to be a a major political party today. And I suppose it's not been for a very long time. So its association association with Mr. Bose was very short because he eventually had to go into exile. And after that, it was essentially leaderless. So I don't know what what the history of this party is, who the leaders have been. The only leader of note and consequence was Mr. Bose. So that's what I can offer you about this matter. In brief, Lakshmi Sen says, in the First World War, when Serbia and Austria-Hungary went to war, why did countries like Germany and Russia come into this war? (laughs) That's a good question. World War One which is the beginning of the great European tribal war, it's extremely complicated. It's very confusing. You have to go deep into it to understand what happened. So let's take a look at the map, as always. Um, Where's the map? Okay, Europe. We're talking about Europe. So in 1914, the map of Europe was different. Um, Austria and Hungary were part of the same empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, And you had Serbia to the south. So, this was, the, this was the situation. Now, the Austro-Hungarian Empire also in, in, uh, incorporated uh, Bosnia and so on. So, in 1914, the situation was such that uh, Serbia had Russia as its ally. Serbia had Russia as its, uh, as its ally. And Austria-Hungary had Germany. As it's ally. lie. Uh, France was allied with the with the, with the with the Russians. Italy was uh, was allied with Germany. Belgium was neutral. The United Kingdom, Britain, was also neutral in splendid isolation and so forth. Okay, so when the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo, in June 1914, by by a student, what happened is that Austria-Hungary blamed Serbia for the assassination. And it took a month or so, but then they eventually declared war on Serbia. Before declaring war on Serbia, they consulted their German allies. They asked Germany. Is it do you mind if we go to war with Serbia? Do you mind? Is it okay with you? And Germany said, Yeah, 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 go ahead, go ahead, go declare war. So then, Austria Hungary declared war on Serbia. The moment this happened, the Russians declared war on Austria Hungary more or less because they were in alliance with Serbia, the French were in alliance with Russia. The Germans took the opportunity of this war to declare war on France to take back some territory that had been taken from them. And once they, and the thing is that to declare, they declared war on France, but they could not cross over into France because the French German border was highly fortified. So, to overcome that problem, the Germans marched through Luxembourg and Belgium. The moment they invaded Belgium, the British declared war on Germany because the British were uh, essentially they were the guarantors of Belgium's autonomy or neutrality. So Britain got involved in this. And then the Germans invaded Belgium. There was a lot of fighting there. They eventually came into France. They tried to take Paris. Eventually the Italians got involved. They fought the Austrians, uh, the Austro-Hungarians, strangely enough, even though they were part of that uh, triumvirate or whatever. And this was a massively confusing mess. Eventually, in a few months, everybody was at war. So that's the kind of thing that happened. There were two main alliances, and, and once one country declared war, everybody got involved into this big conflagration. So that's what happened in World War One At the end of World War One, the first European tribal war, there was a lot of action in various parts of the world, including in Africa, including in, in Asia, uh, and... Uh, even the Americans got involved eventually. And the Germans were beaten badly. They were humiliated. And that eventually set the tone, set set the stage for the second part of the European tribal war, which was World War II. So that is what happened in brief. Next question. Man Vasishta says, what would have happened if Francisco Franco, Francisco Franco, Spanish dictator, would have joined the Axis powers in the Second World War? I mean, he could have joined them. After all, it was because of Hitler and Mussolini's support that he won the Spanish Revolution in 1936-1939, the Spanish Civil War. So you are right. It was because of Hitler and Mussolini's involvement, support, that Francisco Franco was able to win, was able to prevail in the Spanish Civil War, which was a nasty, brutal civil war of Spaniards fighting Spaniards with outside interference and lots of atrocities were committed and so on and so forth. So, the Spanish Civil War was kind of a proving ground for the new German technological advances. In the 1930s, the Germans started rearming under Adolf Hitler. The Third Reich was formed. Uh, the German military machine was revived. New technologies were developed. New uh, new weapon systems were developed. New tanks, new, new aircraft, new kinds of guns and all that. And The Italians and the Germans became allies. Mussolini and Hitler were allies. And they both aided Francisco Franco in the Spanish Civil War. They supplied him with uh, arms, ammunition, weapons, logistical, tactical support, um, advisors, and that sort of thing. It's because of that that Franco was able to prevail and he was able to become the dictator of Spain. It was a long, protracted campaign. In Spain, now when World War II happened, uh, which essentially bega- begins with the uh, invasion of uh, Poland, right? It's it, that's how it begins. So, in World War II, Spain was officially a neutral nation, even though it was inclined to be on the Axis side because it has because Franco owed everything his, his his rule, his dictatorship, his power. To Hitler and Mussolini. But officially Spain remained neutral. They did get involved in certain ways in this, not f- full-fledged fighting, but they were definitely leaning towards the Axis powers. But And yet, uh, the, Spain was not a major military power. Spain was not in any way capable of tilting the balance of the war. So even if they had got involved, it would have essentially harmed Spain more than uh, do anything else. Uh, So I said that Spain was neutral, but they tilted towards Germany and Italy. It it became more apparent after the German occupation of France. So if you look at the map, um, what you find is that uh, the Germans very rapidly invaded and occupied France. They took Paris, they took over the northern and western part of France, and the rest of France was ruled by the Vichy government, I believe, yeah? And it is during this time that uh, Spain was more uh, outwardly kind of quasi-allied with with the Germans, with the, with the Axis powers. And so that's all it was. Spain was not a major power in any sense. And even if it had got involved officially and overtly, it would not have made any real difference in the outcome of the war. All right. Next question. Let's go. All right. Apparently, it's not coming. All right. Here we are. This is again by Man Vashishtam. What was the niedermeyer Hentig expedition? Did it prove good for the Indians or was it a failure? All right. So this is again something that happened during World War One. World War One is from 1914 to 1918, 1918. 20? Look it up. Listen, when I give you dates, you need to double check. I don't memorize dates. I will sometimes sometimes uh, make mistakes with dates. All right. That is known to happen. I don't memorize dates. So in case I, I give you a date, you, if you are really serious about under, understanding this thing, you need to look it up. Uh, yesterday, I spoke about the interior angles of a triangle I said that the sum of the interior angles of a triangle is 360 degrees it's actually 180 degrees so yeah, while speaking I may make some mistakes so please double check so the world war 1 happened between 1914 and 19 whatever 19 I think Yeah. so it was like I said it was a very complicated affair Germany was one of the major belligerents and they were fighting the British for sure Yeah. So, uh, they wanted to undermine British interests worldwide. Let's look at the map once again. So, the British had a massive empire that spanned significant portions of the world. Australia was their colony. New Zealand was their colony. India was the jewel in the British crown. Uh, They controlled various parts of the Middle East. They controlled the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal was essentially the uh, the spinal cord, the spinal cord of the British Empire. All of their shipping passed through this. All of their logistical supply chains and supply lines passed through the, through the Suez Canal. So, if the Germans could cut off the Suez Canal, it would cut off British access to their to the to the to India, which would be a disaster for the British Empire, which could liberate India. Which is why there was a, a lot of action in the Middle East. Turkey got involved in this. Turkey uh, allied with Germany, yeah? And the Germans also wanted to instigate Gandhar or Afghanistan to fight the British. So Afghanistan at the time was kind of an independent nation. They had their own ruler, ruler, Sultan or whatever, Amir, whatever you want to call him. I forget the name, you can look it up. So they were kind of uh, an independent nation, but they were still very much... uh, Um, in some ways, dependent on the British or kind of... uh, There was a a significant amount of British influence in Afghanistan. Uh, There were a couple of wars that the Afghans had with the British and eventually there was um, a stalemate and uh, the Durand line was drawn between Afghanistan and British India, which still exists as the Pakistan-Afghanistan border and so on. So Afghanistan was the wild card in this this region, the Germans sought to instigate the ruler of of Afghanistan to declare war on British India, on the British, and to launch an invasion of India. That was what the Germans sought to do. And that was the objective of the Niedermeyer-Hentig expedition, which I believe uh, Took place in 1915-16, two years. So I think it began, it it took off from Turkey. And uh, it was a bunch of Germans, maybe a couple of Indians may have been involved, I'm not not sure, mostly it was just Germans, right? And uh, they were not quite sure where Afghanistan was. (laughs) So they took off from Turkey, they went eastwards, and eventually they made their way into Afghanistan. They reached Kabul. And uh, they they tried to meet the Amir of Afghanistan. They were not given a very warm welcome. They were made to wait a lot of, for a long time. Eventually, they met the guy. But the guy was, had his own, his own dealings with the British in British India. The British were paying him off to, to keep him uh, pliable and all that. So it was all about, for, for the Afghan Emir, it was about who gives him, gives him more money. Can the Germans give him more money? Can the Germans offer him protection against the British? Not quite so, right? So the mission was not quite successful. They were not able to convince the Afghan uh, king, ruler, whatever, to launch an invasion of India. Even if he wanted to, he was not in a position of doing that. Yeah, And one of the things that contributed to the failure of the Niedermeyer-Hentig operation, expedition is drunkenness. So Afghanistan was an Islamic emirate, Islamic country. And these Germans were fond of drinking. And apparently a few of them got drunk on the streets of Kabul. And the people of Kabul had never seen someone drunk. So it was a shocking thing to happen. And that is kind of something that that contributed to the failure of this expedition. So that's what it was. So to sum it up, it was a failure. It did not succeed. Okay, a couple of questions about cheetahs. Myron says, "How did India's cheetahs go extinct? Did the Emperor Akbar kill them all? Kill all of them alone?" Hmm. And Prasad says, "What are your thoughts on India bringing over a dozen cheetahs from Namibia? Do they possess any virus that could potentially harm indigenous wildlife in India?" Okay, question one is, "How did India's cheetahs go extinct?" Did Emperor Akbar kill all of them? Uh, No, Akbar was not capable of harming anything, but uh, yeah, well, whatever. So uh, it is known that uh, during the time of Akbar's son Salim, Salim, his name was Salim, right? Jahangir was his official title. So this individual, Jahangir, who was a drug addict and a drunkard, he was fond of these cats, Indian cheetahs. And I believe he had 5,000 pet cheetahs. I'm not sure if, if there are 5,000 cheetahs all over the world even to, today. you know. So that's how many cheetahs used to be in existence in India. So what happened to the Indian cheetah? About a century or so ago, they went extinct because of the British. The British exterminated the cheetah. Uh, the reason for this is that the cheetah was considered by the British to be a nuisance, a pest that killed, vi- that killed vi- uh, livestock. And uh, so they decided to exterminate this animal like the way you would try to exterminate mice or rats so they put a bounty on the head of the cheetah they said they would pay whatever price if you brought back a head of a cheetah or a tail of a cheetah so suddenly the indian citizens who were in incredible poverty they found a new way of making a little bit of money and you know having a better life for some time so then there was this big hunt for cheetahs and eventually the cheetah was wiped out hunted down and destroyed and it went extinct from india and many of these indian puppet maharajas also contributed to that so they would host british officers and they would go on these shikars hunts in which they would kill lots incredible numbers of indian animals elephants and rhinos and lions and tigers and cheetahs so that also contributed to the eventual extinction of the indian cheetah so the indian cheetah is extinct it's gone the um, the population the overall population of indian cheetah some of that still exists in to the west of india in persia so a few cheetahs are still alive they still live in iran uh the indian government has had been trying for a for a very long time, for several decades, they were they were requesting the Iranians to send a few cheetahs to India so that we can revive our cheetah population. But it never co- quite worked out. The Iranians never quite agreed. Yeah, they kept India dangling. So now it looks like Indian the Indian government has decided to import I don't know a dozen or so cheetahs from Namibia. So today, I think the the nation with the greatest uh, with the largest cheetah population is Namibia. So we are importing cheetahs from Namibia. So in the past, I've spoken about this that the African Wild cats—they have certain viruses that are not present in Indian wild cats or Indian cats. One of these is the S—is the FIV, the feline immunodeficiency virus, FIV, which is similar to the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. Right. So, uh, I believe the Indian wild cats don't have this virus, as far as I know. I may be mistaken. Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, the Indian cats don't have it. So, uh, and the. African wild cats, as far as I know, they they may have this virus, right? So if you import these cats, could it cause trouble? It could possibly. I'm not sure. It looks... I I hope that the Indian government would have taken this into account. And uh, maybe maybe the risk is not that great, possibly. So I am sure they must have taken an informed decision, a considered decision, and they must have taken... done all the risk analysis, etc. So hopefully... This scenario doesn't exist, and uh, there sh- there would be no problem. So I am hopeful that they would have done that. So that's what I can say. But yeah, as as long as there is no risk, it's a great step. We will have cheetahs in India again, which is great, because the, the cheetah was an integral part of the Indian landscape, just like the was just like the deer and various other animals. So it would be great if we have cheetahs back in the country again. It's it's a, it's a landscape that is tailor made for the for the for the survival and the thriving of these beautiful wildcats. So, overall, good thing. Okay, Rohit says, Your thoughts on the Indian Navy flag? And Atharva says, I respect the three Indian Defense Forces a lot. The thing that makes me sad is that they still use... The same symbols and flags of the UK army, just replacing the crown with the Ashok's thumb. Their ceremonial red coat in the presidential bodyguard's uniforms. Why can't our government make new ceremonial uniforms ceremonial uniforms, and ditch the old ones? Also, changing the logos to something original and also Indian. They still have lots of colonial traditions that could that would be ditched, like the ball dance, etc., Okay, so what are we talking about? Let's take a look at the Indian Navy flag to to understand what's being referred to here. Let me put that up on the screen. Indian Navy flag. Let us see. So what does the, the flag or the emblem of the Indian Navy look like? This is what the Indian Navy flag, emblem, whatever you want to call it, looks like. It is the so-called Saint George's cross, which is the flag of the of England, with the Indian tricolor in the in one corner and the Ashok's thumb in the in the center. My question is: Why do we need the Saint George uh, cross? Why do we need the flag of England as the as the mainstay, as the main part of the of the flag of the Indian Navy? Why do we need that? Isn't this a symbol? of our continued colonization and slavery? So this is a very legitimate question. One has the greatest respect for the Indian Armed Forces. Our, our soldiers, our officers, they, they serve the nation. They put their lives on the line every single day. One has the greatest of respect for them. But why do we need to continue the colonial symbolism? Why do we need colonial emblems on on, on the symbols of our military? I just don't understand this. There is indeed a significant need to decolonize the armed forces. I am not saying we need to change the way they operate. Remove the colonial symbols. It is shameful that we are still continuing this. Let me give you a different example. One second. all right let's take a look at this let me share this on the screen so if you look at the indian aircraft any of the aircraft uh, in the in any of the airlines on in, in india you have this uh, this these two letters that are written vt on all of the aircraft whether it is air india whether it is uh, whatever other airline it is it's always vt vt something right whether it's indigo or or whatever else what does vt stand for it stands for either victorian territory or viceroy territory which again is something left over from the colonial era why can't we remove this you know these small things you may say it's not important it's very important all of these symbols, all of these symbols are very important. They permeate into the psyche, into the consciousness, into the subconscious of the nation. It keeps people colonized and enslaved. And there are lots of people who will say, What are you talking about? Why are you wasting our time on this? It's a, what is the big deal if there is some VT written somewhere? Or what's the big deal if there's a St. George's cross on, on our naval flag? What's the big deal? And it's the same people, the same people are going to complain about lions having their mouth open on the Indian national emblem. They understand the power of symbols. Yeah? The same people who will complain that the Indian emblem on the new parliament building is overly aggressive, they are the same people who will say that we should keep the St. George's cross on the Indian naval flag. And we should keep VT on the Indian aircraft. I am very clear about this. We need to decolonize India. We need to remove all these leftovers from the colonial age. The, the great writer, the Nobel Prize winner, V.S. Naipaul, who was of Indo-Caribbean origin, he visited India. He was deeply pained by what he saw in India. He, he When he came to India, he was hoping to reconnect with the land of his ancestors. He was hoping to see something great. And what he saw was pitiable, was, was piteous. Was and he has written this, that... Uh, when he visited India for the first time, I think it was in the 1950s or 60s, most likely 50s, he went to uh, an Indian army officer's mess. And even in the 1950s, there was a portrait of, uh, of the uh, British queen on the wall in the Indian uh, army officer mess or canteen or whatever. So they still regarded, these officers of the Indian army from the of the time, they still regarded the British monarch as their... Uh, as their their monarch, apparently. They still kept her, her photograph, her portrait on the walls. So that kind of demonstrates the kind of mental colonization that was there at that time. And one wonders how much of it is still prevalent today. Because many of the traditions, especially at the officer level, in the Indian Armed Forces, are continuing just the same, right? So, these things need to be looked into. It's been more than 70 years. How, how long has it been since 1947? More than 70 years, yeah, more than seven decades. I think it is time for India to become properly independent and ditch all the colonial customs, yeah. It is not going to impact the efficiency or the firepower of the armed forces, it's going to liberate them mentally. So, with the greatest of respect, with the greatest of respect and gratitude for the armed forces, I say that we need to decolonize all aspects of the armed forces and all, aspect of, all aspects of India. Remove the VT from the Indian aircraft, from Indian airplanes, and, and change it with, with something more appropriate and other things like that. Why do we need the St. George's cross on the Indian naval flag? It doesn't make any sense to me or any right-thinking person. So yes, I agree with uh, what is being said here, and it, it should happen, it should it should be taken up, for sure. Okay, next. Swaroop says, Why did the US House of Representatives pass a legislative ad- amendment that approves a waiver to India against the punitive Katsa sanctions for its purchase of the S-400 missile defense system? From Russia, do they need India that badly? Hmm. So, what is the CATSA? C A A T S A. I believe it stands for Countering America's Adversaries through Sanctions Act. So, essentially, it means that if you, if if a nation that, uh, if a nation purchases arms, ammunition, weapon systems, whatever, from one of America's enemies, then the Americans can impose sanctions on that nation. And as we know, India has been purchasing Russian weapon systems for a very long time, for decades. And recently, India acquired the S-400 missile defense system, which is the most advanced missile defense system thus far. Now, the S-500 is also there. And the S-550 may also be under development. But yeah, India purchased the S-400 system. Now, the Turks, Turkey also purchased the S-400. And the Americans... uh punished them immediately. They cut off uh, Turkey from the F-35 program, the F-35 stealth fighter plane program. The Turks are no longer allowed to acquire this fighter plane, even though they are part of NATO, even though they're an an official US ally. So there was immediate retaliation against Turkey. I'm not sure if Katsa, the full force of Katsa, has been thrown at Turkey, but there has certainly been punishment. Or that has been imposed upon Turkey. In the case of India, the Americans were threatening for quite some time that we are considering imposing Katsa sanctions on India. India certainly is a candidate for Katsa because India has acquired the S-400 system. We can give you something else. Don't acquire. Don't don't buy Russian weapons. Buy everything from us, from America, and become our you know allies or whatever. That's what they were saying. India did what is best for India because this is the best missile defense system that exists currently, and it's the right thing considering India's national interest. right? So then the Americans were were bloviating, they were saying we will impose sanctions, but eventually, as we know now, the so-called, uh, the, not the so-called, the House of Representatives has passed an amendment, a legislative amendment that uh, approves a waiver for India from the KATSA. So why is it so? It's because India is currently mm-hmm. indispensable to the US as a counterweight to China. The Americans want to utilize India on the geopolitical chessboard as a counterbalance, as a counterweight to China. It is the, India is the only nation in Asia that can conceivably challenge China economically, militarily, etc. It's the one nation that China actually fears, even though they will never say it and they conceal their fear of India under under. Um, under this pretense of of uh, contempt, so if you look at the Chinese uh, social media accounts, if you look at uh, the Global Times what they write, they kind of uh, write in a in a mildly contemptuous tone about India. Um, so they hide their fear in 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 that manner. Of course, they do have a little bit of contempt for India because India has not developed the way it should have. Yeah. India is still a very much colonized nation even today. So yeah, some of that contempt is justified. The Chinese don't quite respect India a lot. But yeah, they do respect certain things that India is able to do now. Yeah, So it's it's a mixed kind of situation. But the point is this. The Americans, if India is no longer in the American camp, then India could find ways of going firmly into the Chinese-Russian camp. And, and and make some sort of compromise there. It's certainly possible. It certainly is possible. The Chinese cannot cross certain lines when it comes to India, but we could cooperate in, in certain manners, which would not be good for the Americans. So the Americans want India on their side in the uh, in the ongoing geopolitical realignment of the world. And they want to use India against China in a variety of ways. And India is very much a part of the Quad. Quad is India... Australia, Japan, and the U.S. Australia and Japan are U.S. vassal states. Japan is under U.S. occupation. Australia is a U.S. colony. So it's essentially India and the U.S. That's what the Quad is. So without India, uh, the Quad doesn't work. And the Quad is essential to uh, to the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy of containing China. So because of these reasons, they need India. India is indispensable. So India has got its calculations, geopolitical calculations right. And the Americans have been left with no option but to offer a waiver to Katsa to India. So, that's what has happened. Shrey Jain says, if China decides to become India's ally for the short term, should we shake their hands? What are the pros and cons? You said in the Jayashankar versus Ajit dowal video, China seems to gain some respect for us is that really a possibility uh, let me once again reiterate there is no Jayshankar Shankar against ajit dowal scenario Mr Jai Shankar, Dr Jai Shankar and Mr Dowal are working for India their objectives are completely aligned the Jai Shankar doctrine is essentially is actually a manifestation of a much larger Modi doctrine and Mr Dowal and Mr Jai and Dr Jai Shankar are both working to the same in the same direction in different spheres. So there is no conflict between the two. Any such notion is baseless. Okay, let me just double reiterate that. Now, uh, if China decides to become India's ally, no, China will never become India's ally. But there can be cooperation between India and China. Uh, in, in in a variety of ways mm-hmm. there could be economic cooper- cooperation between India and China there could be diplomatic cooperation between India and China the Chinese will cooperate with nations w- w- whenever there is something to gain and so will India um, there will be issue-based cooperation there will never be a full-scale alliance India and China are natural rivals right now as long as there is a common shared border between India and Chinese occupied territory, India and China are destined to be rivals. The same way that China and Russia are natural rivals. Currently, there is an understanding between China and Russia because they have a much bigger opponent to uh, counter, which is the US. So currently China and Russia are cooperating and the Chinese know that they cannot cross certain lines with Russia. Russia has incredibly overwhelming firepower. They can They can send China back to the Stone Age. Yeah, the Russians can do it. So the Chinese respect that. They respect the hard edge that the Russians have, the the firepower that the Russians have. have. And that's why they're able to cooperate. Right? Similarly, India also has the same sort of firepower today that the Russians have. Not to that extent, but India can certainly also send China back to the Stone Age if, if need be, if the Chinese make it, imperative for, for us to do that. So when you have that sort of mutually assured destruction, mutual respect, mutual fear, then there is a certain basis for cooperation. So India and China don't have warmth towards each other. The Chinese Communist Party sees India as a long-term rival, as a long-term enemy, as something to be, as a problem to be solved eventually, that's how they see it. But for the short term, there could be cooperation and as india rises economically um china would possibly if if the rise happens let's say in the next 10 15 years india reaches the 10 trillion dollar economy status then the chinese would essentially have no option but to shake hands with india and to make peace with india because a, a rising power is is a ma- massive threat if you if you try to antagonize a power that has so much potential which is rising which is going to keep rising it's going to be bad for you so uh, it is a possibility if India rises further, we need to first reach the $5 trillion mark, then the $10 trillion mark. Once India reaches the $10 trillion mark, the relationship will become very different. Even at the $5 trillion mark, the relationship will be, will be different. It all depends on the leadership. You may be a small nation, you may be a small economy, but if you have robust leadership with with a clarity of, of vision, then things become easy then even large powers will respect you. Yeah. So right now the situation is that the Chinese don't like India, they fear India, but they respect the leadership. They respect the direction that the leadership is taking, the clarity of thought geopolitically in international affairs, the clarity of thought from the military perspective and the economic perspective. That is something the Chinese have no option but to respect. So when that sort of situation is there, there is a potential for issue-based cooperation. So that is what we could see in the future. And of course, there is a bigger uh, threat for China, which also actually, even India could see as a threat, right? The the empire that controls the world, which actually doesn't, doesn't wish India well or China well. Uh, so yeah, there is some common ground that India and China both have and there could be cooperation. And there could be multilateral cooperation between India, China, Russia, possibly even Iran. That could happen. So the West would consider that to be an, the formation of a new axis. BRICS is part of that axis, apparently, in their, in, from their perspective. So yeah, that's the kind of geopolitical uh, situation that is emerging. Multipolarity. The Americans want a bipolar world. The Chinese eventually want a unipolar world. India, France, Russia, Iran want a multipolar world. Not quite Iran, but India, France, Russia for sure. So there are three different competing worldviews right now. The American worldview, what they want is a bipolar world. They are the good guys and some bad guy, hopefully China. The Chinese, they have a different worldview. The world they hope for is a unipolar world where only China rules, everybody else bows down to them. And the world that India and Russia and France are hoping for is a multipolar world. And many of the smaller nations are also hoping for that sort of scenario to, to happen, where everybody prospers, where no hegemony exists, where there is an actual rules-based world order. So there are three different envisaged worldviews that, that are competing right now. And uh, so, yeah, that is the game that is being played as of today. Okay, Zaina says, can India become the world's number one military power in the future? I know it needs economic development. What would, what should India focus on, as in defense equipments? Um. Uh, Yeah, if the Indian economy rises, if the Indian economy grows, India could become the world's number one military power. I mean, if you have a large economy, you have to have a large military. What's the point of having the greatest economy in the world, all these riches, all this wealth, all this prosperity, if you cannot defend it, right? So that is the lesson that India has learned from the past 1,000 years of humiliation. And uh, as India's economy grows, India's military strength will also grow in the... At the same rate. So yes, India can become the world's number one military power in the future for sure. What kind of focus does should the India Indian military have? It's very simple. The first thing you must focus on is to make yourself impregnable. You must first focus on defense. When you play cricket, if you are a bats. Uh, If you're a batsman, batswoman, batter, if you're a batter, the first thing you're taught is how to defend. How to defend, right? You need to first focus on the defense. Once your defense is is impregnable, then you focus on the attacking shots. Similarly, in warfare, in strategy, in empire building, in, in nation building, you have to first focus on defense. Make sure that your defenses are watertight, that your, your nation is impregnable. You have to develop a defensive capability first. India for the past 70 years, maybe 1,000 years, has only focused on defense. And that too imperfectly, badly. So first, we need to make our defenses impregnable. What does that mean? Lots of missiles. You attack me, I'm going to blow you out of the water. I'm going to annihilate your forces. First focus on defenses. So it doesn't have to be high tech, very high tech. We need lots of planes. Numbers matter. Quantity has a quality of its own. We need lots of aircraft, fighter aircraft, interceptors, lots of missiles, Brahmos missiles, various other missiles, artillery pieces. We need lots of naval assets. We don't need very expensive naval assets. We already have, I don't know how many, two aircraft carriers, please, not not any more than that. We need lots of submarines. We need lots of missile boats, cheap, cheap assets, which which can deliver a big punch. You can build a missile boat for $10 million, which is peanuts. And you can put three Brahmos missiles on that. Imagine if you have a hundred of, missi- of such missile boats deployed in the Indian Ocean region. That is a formidable threat for, for the same price as one aircraft carrier. So one has to uh, focus on such things Focus on defense first, focus on on uh, on securing your perimeter, securing your borders. And once you are in a position where it is insanity for any other power to attack you, that's where you can focus on offense, on possibly going beyond your borders and taking the fight to your enemy's territory. Because the number one rule in warfare is don't ever fight on your territory. Take the fight to the enemy's territory. In the entire history of China, whenever they have been forced to fight on their own territory, they have lost. The number one rule in the playbook of the great emperor Sri Chinggis Khan was never fight on your territory. Always fight on the enemy's territory. So what India needs to do is first focus on defense, make make India's defenses impregnable, make the military so powerful that it would be insanity for anybody to consider attacking India, and then focus on offensive capabilities. So that's what India can do, should do. It can be done on a budget. You don't need to focus on extremely expensive equipment. Focus on quantity and keep the quality. You don't need extremely high quality. So that's the kind of thing India could do. And yeah, obviously one can... Uh, One needs to focus on cyber warfare, space warfare, on on hybrid warfare, drone warfare and things like that, which is actually quite cheap, you know. So, yeah, these things should be looked into. Okay, let's take a few more questions. Anurag says, can't dictatorship be positive? There have been a few examples of good dictators. What if India comes under dictatorship? Listen, all kings are dictators, Aren't they? Of course, no dictator can rule on his or her own. You need a group of people whom you depend on because you you have to. You need people to carry out your your orders, your policies, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So all kings are dictators. All emperors are dictators. All queens are dictators. Throughout human history, we had a dictatorial system. Monarchy, aristocracy, autocracy, whatever you want to call it. And even in the 20th century and 21st century, we've had dictators who have been good. It's called benevolent dictatorship. Uh, you can think of a couple of examples. Um, Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore was nothing but a dictator. He was a dictator, but he was a benevolent dictator. right? He uplifted the the city-state of Singapore from a third world country status to a highly developed country status in just a generation 20 30 years. His rule was iron fisted, it was hard, but he was fair, he was just overall. Overall, there could have been a few exceptions here and there, but you can disregard that. Yeah, overall, statistically, he was a good man, a good, a good, good ruler, a hard ruler, iron fisted ruler, but overall, it, his rule was good for the country. So, that is an example of benevolent dictatorship, Joseph. Tito, the founder of Yugoslavia, who fought the Nazis in World War II, he was, he can be considered to have been a benevolent dictator. He was a communist, but uh, his flavor of communism, socialism, is called Titoism, I think, yeah? And it was a more relaxed form of communism and it, it, uh, uh, it was good for his nation. Yugoslavia developed well and the people were reasonably well off and so on. So that's another example of a benevolent dictator. A third example could be Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the dictator of Turkey who brought Turkey out of the Middle Ages and firmly into the 20th century, who the guy who fought the, and won the Turkish War of Independence from the European powers who established the uh, the modern secular nation, Republic of Turkey. Yeah, He forced the Turks to modernize And and yeah, so that's another example of a benevolent dictator. Uh, Some of his methods may have been... Well, you could consider them to be slightly brutal. Slightly brutal. But yeah, overall, he was a benevolent dictator. So yeah, that's how it is. So dictatorship can be positive. Not all dictators are evil. Uh, There are certain examples in Africa as well. Thomas Sankara, I believe, was one of those. Uh, he was a good man, I believe, and so on. Yeah. So there are some examples of good dictators. And and see, when, when, it, when it comes to India, uh, there's no point speculating. So I will not go into that matter. But yes, dictatorship can be good depending on the person and the system. All right, all right. Let's take a look at a couple more questions. Um... Laksh says, my dad says our ancestors who lived thousands of years ago lived far healthier lives and were superior to us both mentally and physically. Is he right in thinking this? Have modern conveniences, the pollution in the air, the chemicals in our food, combined with a sedentary lifestyle that doesn't entail much physical work, made us weaker than ever? There is more than a small element of truth to what your dad says. Um... It's true that technologically we are way more advanced than we have ever been, as far as we know. yeah. We have the convenience of modern technology. We are able to communicate in this manner. I'm able to reach out to you and speak with you all. Yeah, we have uh, good lives, reasonably good lives. we c- we we can travel in airplanes. We have all the conveniences of that modern lives uh, that modern life offers us because of technological advances, right? So yeah, that's great. But health-wise, people are suffering today. Uh, Everybody is sedentary. Everybody sits all day in offices, in cubicles, at home. Uh, There is a great deal of leisure. There is very little physical activity. Nobody even sees the sky anymore. No one sees the sun anymore. Nobody takes in sunlight, lack of vitamin D, uh, lack of physical activity. You don't even commune with nature anymore. Nobody plays in rivers anymore. No one knows what wildlife is like because you don't don't get to see it. Um, There are all these lifestyle diseases, lifestyle issues. Diabetes is is a major, major issue worldwide nowadays. Uh, Obesity is a very big deal in the developed world, increasingly in India. So lots of issues, yes. There are all these issues that exist today. Uh, The air is increasingly polluted. There is deforestation. There are chemicals and preservatives in food. Yeah, so there are problems today that never existed earlier. So health-wise, whether it is physical health or even mental health, I think our ancestors, maybe a thousand years ago, uh, were better off than us. That is quite possible. That, that There is a significant amount of truth in that. I would say that, you know, when it comes to your diet, there should be a very simple rule. If your ancestors did not eat this a thousand years ago, don't eat it. So today you have all the fast food, French fries, and pizza, and pasta, and processed foods, and whatnot. It's best to keep to cut that out. You know, if people did not eat it a thousand years ago, don't eat it today. So that is a very simple rule of thumb that will essentially prevent lots of health issues. So, uh, so yes, I kind of agree with your dad. There is a significant amount of truth in what he is what he is saying. Physically, they were much healthier. Mentally, I think they were much uh, better off than us. Uh, so that way, yes, they were better off, our ancestors, than what we are today. Reserved says, what is standard of living exactly? Is it related to countries' economies? So is it correct to say that with the decline of the West and the rise of China, the standard of living in China and India has also increased Um, The standard of living is indeed tied, uh, is indeed connected with a country's economy. Uh, The larger your economy is, the better your standard of living. Typically, uh, it depends on your nation's GDP. But more importantly, it depends on your nation's per capita GDP, which means your nation's GDP, annual GDP, divided by the population. So let's take a look at uh, nations ranked by GDP, yeah? Let me share my screen. Just give me a second, please. Uh, Let's take a look at uh, the rankings to get an idea of what this means. Okay, this is GDP per capita. And uh, it is sorted by uh, purchasing parity. Um, Purchasing power parity. So Qatar is number one. The GDP per capita in Qatar, the nation's GDP divided by the population is $128,000. Then you have Macau, which is a tiny nation state again. Then Luxembourg, Singapore, very high, very high. Brunei, Ireland, UAE, Kuwait, Switzerland, San Marino. So if you look at these countries, these are countries that you would consider to be very affluent countries, right? Very affluent nations. Hong Kong, Norway, the U.S., Iceland, the Netherlands, Saudi Arabia, so and so on. So it is very clear that the standard of living is intrinsically related to the per capita GDP of a nation. Where does India figure in this? So India's per capita GDP, for China, it is $16,000. And uh, where is India... India, it is $7,000. India is in 122 position, number 122 on the list. Where is China? China is number 79 on the list. So, what does standards of living mean? It means how good of a life can you afford to live? How much money do you have? And what does that money translate into in terms of the standard of living, the quality of life? Can you live a good life? Do you have access to clean water, good food, uh, luxuries, consumer goods, and so on? Um, Do you have good infrastructure in your nation, good roads, good transportation, good schools, good governance, and so all of that, all of that put together is your standard of living. The level of prosperity. Yeah? And that obviously is intrinsically related to your per capita GDP in your nation. So that is, in short, what, in brief, what it is. So uh, the West, it it is declining geopolitically. It has not yet declined economically. Yeah. Uh, China's um, GDP is rising. India's GDP is rising. So as the GDP rises, the standards of living rise. People become slightly progressively more and more prosperous. And you can see that in India. When I was a little kid, I remember seeing people walking barefoot on the streets. And the the main mode of transportation for people in India was a bicycle. When I was a little kid, I still have those memories. Today, it's very different, right? There is still poverty in India. India is still classified as a third world country, low income country. But from the time when I was a little kid to today, it's been a big change. So the levels of prosperity, even though they are not great, they have increased, they've improved. And the standard of living has progressively improved. It is getting better every single year as the economy grows, expands. And uh, so, yeah, So that's how it works. So India is getting better. China is getting better. China is significantly ahead of India as of today. And let's see how it goes. All right. So that's what it is. Saurabh says British historian Robert Toombs wrote an article reviewing the RRR movie, and he criticizes this movie, saying that the portrayal of the nasty British is untrue. He even said that the British Raj was fair with Indians, and he even claimed that this movie is made with for Hindu nationalism and it's a BJP tool. So please tell us how fair was the British Raj with Indians? Uh, correct his history, uh, his knowledge of history, and so on. The British Raj was a monstrous, barbaric, genocidal killing machine. It was a tool of extraction. It extracted everything of value out of India, it destroyed India and it enriched the UK at India's expense. By the time the British left India, India's life expectancy was 28, 32, something like that. Horrible. The average person could expect to live 28 or 32 years. Can you imagine how bad that is? That's what they did to India. They committed genocide in India. They engineered hundreds of artificial famines throughout India. A famine in South India, a famine in Northern India, a famine in East India, West India, Bombay, Madras, wherever, year after year after year, artificial famines. At least a hundred million Indians died in these artificial famines. And when a region was affect, afflicted with the famine, there would be epidemics. If you can't eat, if you don't have food to eat, your immune system crashes. If your immune system crashes, you are more susceptible to illnesses. And incredibly horrible illnesses happened. Plague, typhus, whatnot. You know? That death toll is not counted in the death toll of the famines. That is, again, something that they engineered. And when there would be a famine, people were starving, they would force the people to work in exchange for relief. And the relief material they would give was less rations than the than, than the uh, prisoners of war in the Auschwitz extermination camp run by the Nazis. That is how brutal and barbaric the British were. The amount of money that they stole out of India is estimated to be at least worth 45 trillion dollars in today's money. Yeah. The death toll is incredibly horrific. At least 100 million Indians. They destroyed Indian society. Look at the condition of the so-called tribal people. Who did that? The British did that. And then they tried to re-engineer Indian society. They tried to uh, impose their foreign religion on India and it's worked. Yeah. And they are still interfering in India's internal affairs. So who the hell is this Robert tooms to speak about uh, the Indian movie RRR and say that the British Raj was, was fair with Indians? He is nothing but a neo-colonizer. That's what he is. He is trying to pre- maintain the mental colonization of Indians. And he is trying to defend the British Raj. He is trying to defend the indefensible. So what is there to say about such people? They are essentially defending something that is worse than what the Nazis did. That's what it is. So there you are. Such people still live today. Shame, shameful. All right, all right. Let's move on from here. Your favor says. What are your views on Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger? Why their movies are so entertaining? And why that type of actors are not seen in Bollywood. Oh, yeah, I was a great fan of Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger when I was a kid. Oh, one of the, um, yeah, what movies? Rocky, Rambo, very entertaining movies. Obviously, some sort of, there is an element of American propaganda again there. As a kid, you don't see that. You see the great uh, hero doing heroic things. Very entertaining. So there was the 1980s, where, which was the heyday of Sylvester Stallone in the 1990s was the heyday of Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, yeah these two guys were bodybuilders. Uh, Sylvester Stallone has a very inspiring story of rags to riches. Uh, He became a big uh, star with the movie Rocky in which I think he wrote the screenplay screenplay, and he insisted that he should be the main actor, the the hero in the movie and that paid off and a very hard-working person. He still is very fit So is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger eventually became the governor of California. Uh, Had he not been born outside the US, he could have run for president as well. So yeah, Um, interesting people, very entertaining, uh, inspirational stories for sure. Um, Yeah, so I used to really like those movies, like their movies as a kid. I still enjoy those movies. Um, Why are such actors not seen in Bollywood? Bollywood is all about nepotism. There are a few good actors and actresses, but uh, they are kind of marginalized. They don't get great rules. It's the same four or five people over and over and over again in Bollywood. It's nepotism. Uh, so, yeah, Bollywood, it's worthless in my opinion. There are some actors and actresses who are definitely good. Some of them whom I do respect as artists, but most of them are just, uh, I don't want to even see them. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what it is. Sonathoy says, Do you watch the UFC? I do watch the UFC when I find the time to watch it. I am a fan of martial arts. Uh yeah, but I I, I can't remember the last time I saw it live, but I try to catch it, uh, catch some highlights on YouTube or or on Instagram or whatever sometimes. Um, so yeah, I I do enjoy watching martial arts. I am a fan of that. So yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, Nomad Roni says, how to articulate without getting nervous or fearful? How to become a great storyteller? You want to develop any skill you have to practice. You want to become a public speaker, let's say. You have to practice. Start practicing in front of a mirror. Pick a topic. Give yourself a certain amount of time. Let's say three minutes or five minutes or ten minutes and speak non-stop. Speak non-stop. Don't allow yourself to stop. So speak, or maybe you can take a camera, a cell phone and record yourself and then force yourself to watch yourself speaking. Yeah, do it over and over and over again. Always have an objective, a certain topic and a certain time period. I am going to speak about this topic for this many minutes. Start with three minutes and break the topic down into three, four different uh, subsections and keep that in your mind or keep that on on a piece of paper in front of you and practice, practice, practice practice every single day for 3 months, 4 months, 5 months once you are fluent in that once you feel it's natural start practicing in front of an audience start with 2 people start with your brother and sister start with a couple of friends once you get comfortable with that, expand the audience and that's how it goes Yeah, practice, it's all about practice there is no substitute for hard work all the best Okay, uh, let me take a couple of questions from the live chat. Yes, live chat questions. If you have any, let's have it. And if there is anything interesting, I will pick up a couple of questions. Um, Harsh says, Can you please shed some light on the current geopolitical scenario in Antarctica? Well, um, if I were to be funny, I would say that the geopolitics has been played by penguins and seals, but no... uh, Antarctica is currently uh, a place where uh, multiple nations have made claims to territory, but uh, I think there is a convention that nobody will make, uh, will actually acquire territory there. So, right now, the, 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 the Continent is being used for scientific research. Multiple nations have scientific research stations there. India has at least two scientific st- research stations there. Dakshin Gangotri and something else. The Chinese have three, four research stations. The Americans are there. The Argentines uh, Argentines are there and so on. So uh, there could be a lot of resources in Antarctica. Maybe oil and gas and minerals and all that. So in the future, there could be action there. Right now, there is a... There is a, a kind of sense of balance there and, and no one is allowed to exploit Antarctica at all. There is zero commercial exploitation as of today. Maybe it could change in the future. As long as the UN exists and all, things will stay this way. But who knows what's going to be there in the future. So that's what it is. What is zero raised to zero? It's in, it is undefined. I would like to know your opinion about communists. I think I have made my opinion clear about communists multiple, multiple, multiple times. When it comes to other nations, they are patriots. When it comes to India, India's communists have always been anti for whatever reason. Maybe some of them are nationalistic, but overall the communist party uh, parties, whatever, have typically been mercenaries for foreign powers. And the communists have this stranglehold on the Indian education system, on the Indian uh, various institutions, etc., which is harmful for the nation the effect has been overall harmful for india all right um let's see if i can see some other interesting questions ask me something new please um, 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 um. After 50 years, can we see Indian military bases all over the world? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? It may happen. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. If I were to answer, it's just uh, speculation. It's possible. Uh... <laughs> uh, HIP says, recently in the farewell speech of Boris Johnson, he advised three things to the new PM who are to be. Of which the first was, stay close to the Americans. This should nail the fact that the UK is indeed a vassal state of the US. Indeed. Indeed. That's what Boris Johnson said. Stay close to the Americans or something to that effect. So the US, uh, the UK is nothing but a colony, a vassal state of the US. And the UK economy essentially depends on only on one thing. Money laundering. That's all it is. That's the only value it provides to the world. Money laundering. Nothing more than that. All right. Let's see if I can take one more question. Um, yeah. Okay. I think we're done. I don't see anything interesting. Lots of comments and so on. But yeah. All right. My dear friends done for today, over two hours again. So thank you very much for all the questions. Great fun, as always, talking to you all. Uh, Thank you to all of you who have uh, commented, who have asked questions, uh, who have contributed in any way or the other to the channel. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next session. Until Until then, take care. Thank you. Bye.